Okay, so while clinical interviews can be very useful for, um, for getting a lot of kinds of information about a person, including observing how the, beha how the patient behaves, um, there are a lot of times when we want more observation, more observation about um, uh, how the person behaves in other kinds of circumstances. And so here we can move on to behavioral observation. And if you're following along in um, Professor Mike's slides, I'm on page, I mean, I'm sorry, on slide number eight uh, on observation. For the most part, um, when we talk about behavioral observation, we're going to look at that as being direct observation. We can also do some ways of indirect observation, which can be helpful, but, you know, we tend to prefer to do direct observation whenever possible because um, that involves a much lower level of inference about the uh, data itself, right? We can actually observe it ourselves rather than relying on somebody else's observations. Um, I think I might have mentioned to you in an earlier podcast uh, that... Um, you know, I've taken patients uh, out of the office into other kinds of situations. Um, <clears throat> uh, if the patient has some social anxieties, um, maybe go to a place and see what that social anxiety actually looks like uh, when they are experiencing it and what kind of things they feel comfortable doing and not um, and, um, and how they behave in some kinds of situations. Uh, I've done a lot of um, leaving the office, in a sense, with patients, uh, with patients who've had um, cognitive difficulties due to brain injuries or uh, some some other kind of thing or dementias, and um, and look at you know how they negotiate things in the world. Um, uh, going to the grocery store was one. Going to the cereal aisle to do a visual scan of you know to find the uh, Honey Nut Cheerios or something like that, um, and you can see how a person approaches the problem. Um, and, uh, you know, how they persist in uh, uh, trying to solve the problem, and a lot of things like that, right? So, um, um, for, um, for assessing or measuring aspects of kids uh, and kids' behavior, observation is going to be used a lot. Uh, child psychologists are often going to want to observe kids in a classroom situa situation, or maybe kids in a free play kind of situation, uh, uh, or in an interchange with their parent where it's not obvious that they're being observed, right? Um, those things aren't just useful for research purposes. They can also be useful for individual um, assessment. In doing direct assessment of individual human behaviors, there's, um, uh, there's a little um, a mnemonic that's often used, uh, the ABCs of observation. The ABCs are the antecedents, the behavior, and the consequences. And that's basically antecedents are what happened before it, Behavior refers to the quality or character of the behavior itself, and the consequences are what happens after. Uh, those three categories of information are going to be very useful for building some sort of hypothesis or functional analysis of how that behavior is operating, how it's working for the person. Um, in um, behavioral psychology, one of the one of the tenets is that um, people do things for a reason, right? They uh, remember. Um, uh, reinforcement and punishment and positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, right? Behaviors are essentially maintained because of uh, the consequence of those be those behaviors a lot of times. Sometimes it depends on antecedents. Anyway, um, so we can figure out some of that. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, um, uh, we do a full course uh, once a semester, no, once a year, I'm sorry, on uh, behavior modification. Um, uh, that um, that I've always taught in the past, but um, someone else is teaching it this semester because uh, it's completely online. Um, but um, when we go back to real life, I'll start teaching that again in real life. I mean, this is real life, but 
you know what I mean. Uh, anyway, so um, so looking at the antecedents, the behavior, and the consequences, one of the really nice things about um, this way of looking at it is that it does tend to reduce the level of inference about behavior. Uh, what I mean is that if you ask somebody to describe behavior, they're not just going to tell you about the behavior. They're often going to tell you what they think about the behavior. So, you know, a teacher might say, well, he gets, he gets restless. And, um, okay, that's actually an inference on the part of the teacher. What does that actually look like when the child gets restless? Or is it really due to them feeling restless? Or is it really due to something else, right? So I don't really necessarily want to rely on somebody else's inferences. I want to remove as much inference as possible to get down to exactly what that behavior looks like, what happens before it, what happens after it. Um, thinking of observation that way in those three categories is helpful for, as I said, understanding the behavior. We can come to a hypothesis or a functional analysis of maybe why that behavior started, that problem behavior, and what's maintaining it over time. But that's also often going to lead to a treatment intervention. Well, what can we do about it um, uh, You know, after the fact? So a, um, so a functional analysis like that in a lot of cases can be more useful than something like a diagnosis because a functional analysis really is going to directly lead to uh, treatment interventions. Now we can have um, uh, people self-observe. This would be a form of indirect observation where we're not directly observing a person all the time but we may ask them to observe their own behavior at times. Um, this can be useful for behaviors that are very frequent or even um, covert behaviors, like a person's thoughts and emotions, that we may not be able to um, uh, fully observe uh, uh, objectively. We might want to get the person to report on it themselves. So things like um, behavior diaries or uh, emotional diaries, where a person is recording their, th or thought diaries, where they're recording their thoughts um, when they're in particular situations outside of the therapist's office. And then they bring those records in and we can review them, right? So they're essentially doing self-observation. We can ask other people to observe the patient or client, you know, by doing things like teacher rating scales or parent rating scales of a child's behavior. Uh, those can look at um, uh, different kinds of behaviors uh, for a particular individual. Those can be very useful, and they're usually referred to as behavior rating scales. Behavior rating scales sometimes fool people a little bit because sometimes they look like uh, you're asking the person to administer a psychological test because it's sort of formal looking like that. But really it's looking at um, particular behaviors and what context they happen in and how frequently they happen in. Behavior rating scales can be helpful also to get a sense of how pervasive a particular behavior is. Is this happening across situations or only in certain kinds of situations? So we can have, as I said, uh, several different reporters report on the same individual person. And we might find that, oh, this is only a problem in math class and not a problem in Taekwondo or in Girl Scouts or at home at dinner time, right? And that can be some pretty important information. Um, behavior rating skills, um, you know, are often in the form of checklists or other things like that. Uh, I'll say one more thing about them. They can be useful, too, for reminding people to report uh, things. <laughs> um, let's see, uh, if you've ever in your family or you've known families who've had um, uh, uh, a family member with a developmental disability or a behavioral issue, uh, very often families get really good at dealing with that and um and they often get so good at dealing with it that they um 
that they forget that they deal with it, right? They may come to learn early on that, for instance, their family member gets very much overwhelmed if there's too much noise. And so, well, they just have gotten into the habit of not having the TV playing during mealtimes or not having music playing or only having things up to a certain uh, volume or, you know, things like that. And when you sit in an office and you ask them about things, they're liable to forget that because they've been doing it so long and they've just gotten so used to it. But if you um, if you would ask them to fill out a behavior rating scale, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I guess we do do that thing. And so it's good to, you know, essentially jog people's memory to remind them of um, uh, those kind of things. One last thing about um, uh, observation is the potential for reactivity of measurement. Um, reactivity of measurement means that it's, uh, essentially the act of measuring it has the potential to change what we're measuring, right? This is called different things in different contexts, you know, um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, in physics, it's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Um, and Heisenberg basically said that, uh, uh, you know, if you try to measure the, uh, uh, the motion of a particle, how do you know that just the mere measurement didn't potentially change um, the vector of that particle? And so, um, you know, on a more broad philosophical scale, there is always the possibility here that by measuring we could change things. Well, when it comes to, uh, more specifically here, uh, direct observation, I'm sorry, even indirect observation of humans and their behavior and their emotions, reactivity would have to do with the idea that if somebody knows that they're being watched or knows that they're being measured, then that could potentially change their behavior. Now, of course, that's going to be a problem in research settings where, you know, we want to be as unobtrusive with our observations as possible. Um, and that is potentially a problem in um, clinical observation as well for a particular patient. I would say that in some ways it may be a little less of a problem in clinical uh, uh, populations because for a few realistic kinds of things, um, one is that while we're doing observation uh, and there's the possibility of reactivity, um, often that reactivity goes in the desired direction. Uh, so for, for example, if um, the desired uh, therapeutic direction. So that, for example, if somebody is having a problem with um, with binge eating and they're eating a lot of food, uh, you know, in large quantities at particular times, and they're self-monitoring that, that is, they're writing down everything that they're eating, there's a tendency for that self-monitoring to decrease the amount of eating that they're doing. So that would be change in the therapeutic direction. That, incidentally, is... Um, you know, uh, maybe even a part of a treatment plan later on that just self-observation can intentionally change uh, the behavior. The other reason why it's not necessarily a problem is that if we continue to do some of that measurement throughout the treatment period, then we can expect some of the same level of reactivity of measurement in treatment. So that if we're measuring during assessment and we're getting some reactivity, and we measure during treatment, and we also get some of the same reactivity, but we can still make a valid um, comparison between those two. That probably wouldn't be stringent enough to, um, uh, for research purposes, um, but for individual assessment, sometimes it might be the best we can do. We can't always uh, reduce that reactivity. You know, we can make measurements less obtrusive, but ultimately, most of, well, yeah, our patients are going to know that there is some observation going on, right? That would, that's only ethical that they would know. So, um, uh, observation, collecting a lot of information about particular behaviors, antecedents, behaviors, and consequences.